A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, October 11th, 2022, the 629th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, and you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide range of platforms. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. We have four weeks to go until the 2022 midterms, 28 days from now. Assuming nothing gets too crazy, we will all be voting to save this country, hopefully with a minimal level of election fraud. But the level of the fraud is yet to be determined. We do know that they will try to steal elections wherever they possibly can. It doesn't seem like it's going to work, even 
if they go all in, which I fully expect them to do, because this is an existential crisis for the Democrat Communist Party and for the uniparty globalist anti-America first crowd generally. There should be no doubt that these people understand their complicity in what has happened over the last two years since the 2020 election was stolen. They have worked to cover up that election fraud. They have tried to silence anyone who talks about it at all. They've covered up the truth about January 6th and exploited that whole narrative to harm MAGA, to harm American citizens who want the truth about elections in their country. They have voted with and appeased Joe Biden in the rampant spending, the initiation of the global communist agenda in America. They have voted with him on the quote unquote war in Ukraine. And they have participated in the gaslighting campaign against the American public that allows our mainstream culture to still believe on some level that this is all normal and that this is all okay. If they lose power, they're finished and they know it. I was chatting with a couple of friends of mine last night, two young, professional, successful women in their 30s. And we were talking about receiving campaign text messages, often from Democrats asking if they can count on our support this fall and whether we're interested in supporting and donating to their campaigns. And neither of these people are particularly political. They're both awake and they have a pretty good understanding of what's going on, but they don't invest a lot of time and energy in thinking about and talking about politics. It's not the first thing on their minds every day. And so I was surprised to learn that when they receive these messages, they do the same thing that I do, which is text back and try to mess with these people. And I think that their approach might even be a little bit better than mine. When I get these messages, I always write back and ask what the candidate is doing to fix election fraud in their state, because I still receive these text messages often from California. But one of my friends had another approach. She plays hers out straight down the middle and says, what are you doing to fix inflation? We are suffering out here. And if you're the campaign worker carrying on this text conversation on behalf of your candidate and you see that message, you can easily read that message as being from a reachable Democrat or maybe a swing voter that they think they could bring over to their side because that's what their data shows. That's why that number comes up as the one to message. And me being a former California Democrat, they have my number. That's why they message me. So they see her message and they take it very seriously. When I ask them what their candidate is doing about election fraud, that's usually the end of the conversation. But her message actually opened up a conversation and they said, you know, we're trying to increase the minimum wage and we're trying to make sure that all workers have health care. And that's the typical Democrat line because they don't believe that voters are actually sophisticated enough to understand inflation. So they believe that they can just use their slogans and the positions they already had and convince voters that their positions are what's going to help inflation, 
even though their positions are what has caused inflation. So they are accustomed to rolling out a typical Democrat response. And for a Democrat voter, some of that stuff might make sense. But my friend is not a typical Democrat voter. She actually runs finance for startups. And so she has a sophisticated understanding of markets and economics. And she responded the way someone with a sophisticated understanding of these things would respond. And then her conversation ended there. But nonetheless, it's possible that she might have helped red pill that campaign worker or at least demoralize them about believing that the Democrat Party has answers to what Americans actually care about. And that thought kind of cracks me up a little bit, too. But the reason I actually bring this up is because of my surprise in hearing that Two women like this actually did enjoy responding to these Democrats and pointing out how bad their policies are for this country. We tend to think that those of us who are, I guess, kind of farther along and deeper into this are the only ones who enjoy doing this sort of thing, but apparently not. And if people in the mainstream who don't really prioritize politics in their daily lives are doing this as well, I take that as a good sign. So let's check out some other good signs that are not dependent on polling. I'll discuss polling as well. But let's focus on some little pieces from reality that give us a sense of what Democrats think of their actual prospects for the midterms. And I want to start with Katie Hobbs because it seems like they're basically letting Katie Hobbs go. They are grappling with the fact that Katie Hobbs has absolutely no chance to beat Carrie Lake in Arizona. Katie Hobbs did a little round on the morning shows on Sunday. And even on that very friendly turf, she was asked why she wouldn't debate Carrie Lake. And she said that her schedule is basically jammed up until the election and she just can't squeeze it in. She doesn't owe that to the voters of Arizona. She doesn't need to actually face the candidate on the same stage and respond to that candidate when that candidate challenges her. As far as Katie Hobbs and the Democrats go, that's simply no longer part of the process anymore. They don't have to campaign. They don't have to win your vote. They just have to repeat the Democrat Party talking points about any given issue on television shows, skip campaigning altogether, and then just make sure that the media still has a plausible way to say that that Democrat won in the event they're able to pull off the massive election fraud required to actually produce a quote-unquote winning result. Then Katie Hobbs had a little sit-down with Hispanic media where she was asked what in her personal experience she has learned from the Hispanic community, and she had absolutely no answer. And then she said something about family values and hard work, which means nothing and is just a couple of stereotypes. And then she said 
her sister-in-law was Hispanic and she's working on her Espanol, but right now she only has un poquito. So the Hispanic community makes up something like a third of Arizona's population and Katie Hobbs doesn't know any of them. And she doesn't seem to have any idea of what they actually care about. Although the flip side of that is if she did know what they care about, she certainly couldn't say any of it because everything they want is in direct conflict with the Democrat platform, particularly when it comes to immigration. Democrats made a bet a long time ago that they would have a permanent blue majority in this country based on the influx of illegal aliens. It was assumed they would either become citizens and then vote for Democrats or that they would have children in America who would be American and grow up to vote for Democrats. Or it was assumed they could simply just steal enough votes from illegal aliens and inject those into the elections and continue to win indefinitely. It was an explicitly racist strategy that the Democrats believed they could exploit forever and then win forever. Because as we can see pretty much all the time, every time they seize illegitimate power, they use that illegitimate power to make it easier to seize more illegitimate power. But Katie Hobbs and her campaign have been an absolute disaster, and the Democrat mainstream is coming to terms with that now. Let's see how Morning Joe and Morning Mika are handling it and a hat tip to the War Room crew. We let you go because I think it is on the mind of Arizona voters. Are you saying this morning that there is no circumstance that you can envision or would even try to negotiate in which you and Carrie Lake would appear at a debate together before the election? At this point in the race with 30 days to go, uh, our schedule in terms of, of forums, uh, is pretty much set, and and I'm really happy with where we are in uh, the plans we have to continue talking directly to the voters of Arizona. You look at the slate of statewide candidates in Arizona uh, for people like me who actually, I don't know, I like Western democracy. I like free elections. I think people that lose elections should, uh, you know, for me, uh, I'm, I'm very rattled by uh, by what I see out in Arizona. That said, um, if Carrie Lake's positions are so indefensible, then Katie Hobbs, in my opinion, needs needs to debate her, and and because you know she she's leaving the stage to her, she's turning the microphone over to her, uh, just like the Democrats uh, or Republicans did in the September or in the uh, December the, the January sixth hearings. Just turning the microphone over to him instead of pushing back. And that one person you said talked about how Katie Hobbs wasn't around. I've never seen running from debates ever, ever in any race. I've never seen it help a candidate. Your point, Joe, I mean, at the very least, she should be able to get on stage and be there yeah. to talk about fact versus fiction. And even if it isn't a conversation, because if Carrie Lake is does what Carrie Lake does, it's usually spewing a slew of lies wrapped up in a tight little present. So 
what she should do is just say, I can't comment on that because that is right. not fact. You can, you but know, you, but, and but, here but, are the four different ways that, you know, this is not fact. And you have a candidate that is constantly lying. Is that what Arizona wants? Does Arizona want a governor who lies through her teeth for power? Does Arizona want a governor who doesn't care about you? She just cares about winning and she will stoop so low she will degrade herself and 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 capitalize on the power of disinformation just to get power. That's what she's doing right here, right now, to your face, lying. I'm not participating in lying. I'm just here to separate fact from fiction. And when she brings up an actual policy that's an actual debate, I will engage. I mean, even if she did that, it would be something. But nothing, I definitely think that is running away from what is you might, some might disagree, a threat to our society, Carrie Lake. Well, you know what, Mika, you make very compelling arguments. So the Democrat should go out and make those compelling arguments. I personally think she would, you know, people go, oh, she's so telegenic. Oh, she's, she's this. No, she's an election denier. She's a conspiracy theorist. She, she's a Barack Obama supporter. When it was cool to support Barack Obama, she supported Barack Obama. When it was cool to support Donald Trump, she supported Donald Trump. When it was cool to support conspiracy theories, she supported conspiracy theories. I'm telling you again, our next guest, if he mm. debated her, there would be open weeping among Republicans. <laughs> so Let's get why? <laughs> why do we have a Democrat who right. is running scared and running away from a person who should be the easiest in the world to debate against? Because she is literally embracing crackpot conspiracy theories promoted Crazy. by Chinese religious cult websites. You Join can't debate now. against that. So apparently, according to Mika Brzezinski, Carrie Lake is just spewing lies wrapped up in a tight little present. And I have to say it kind of sounds like Mika Brzezinski either wants to eat Carrie Lake or maybe wear her skin or maybe just be best friends. But I guess calling her a tight little present is a compliment of some sort. So even Joe and Mika are saying that Katie Hobbs needs to debate Carrie Lake. Now that probably won't happen, but hey, maybe it will. And that would not help Katie Hobbs at all. Mark Kelly, the Senate candidate from Arizona and the current sitting illegitimate senator from Arizona, got destroyed by Blake Masters last week. Democrats have every reason to avoid debating because up to this point, the media has not made them actually answer for any of the things they've been saying for the last two years which are almost exclusively lies based on absolutely nothing. They've been able to get away with whatever narrative they want to spin in order to gain political advantage, and the media has helped them and supported all of those narratives. But they can't do that on the debate stage. So the smartest thing for them to do is figure out a plausible reason why they should never have to debate. It seems like they've assumed that their best bet is to just avoid the debate 
and hope that the media can cover for them and that the voters just won't notice. And they're probably right. Their best bet is to have the media cover for them, even if they have to call out the fact that the Democrat won't debate them getting called out for a second so that all of the child brains in the MSNBC audience can say, yeah, you know, I would prefer that she would debate, but I can see why she isn't because Carrie Lake's an election denier. She's crazy. And Katie Hobbs shouldn't give her that platform because child brains have been taught that the worst thing imaginable is to ever give a platform to anyone who's telling the big lie. And it's not because they might sound completely rational and make the case that the 2020 election was stolen and that people listening to them might be like, oh, yeah, the 2020 election was definitely stolen. No, it's not that. It's that if you give these people a platform and anybody ever hears the no-no words, there might be another very violent insurrection. And that threatens to destroy our very democracy. It's smart that they're not having John Fetterman up in Pennsylvania debate Dr. Oz. And they do have a plausible reason for why he won't up there. John Fetterman had a stroke and now he can't really speak or process speech. And his mind doesn't seem to be working on time. And that's sad. We can say that. That's okay. It's not good that the poor guy had a stroke and is now struggling. But the response to that isn't to say, well, John Fetterman just simply can't debate, but he'll probably get better someday. So you should still vote for him. The proper response would have been to attempt to replace Fetterman with someone else and then let that candidate actually debate. But these Democrat candidates are terrible. There's not one Democrat candidate in the country who could stand on a debate stage with any Republican who even flirts with the ideas of America first and come out looking good. The strategy of leaving all the campaigning up to the media and relying on the election fraud and the media narrative to complete the steal, well, that seems to be a failing strategy at this point as well. But there are some more signs that the Democrats are significantly worried about their prospects in the midterms. They seem to be understanding that they are going to be annihilated. And some of them are beginning to jump ship. Last week, Andrew Yang said that he is not a Democrat anymore. And just this morning, Tulsi Gabbard released a video saying that she's not a Democrat anymore. And Tulsi's statement and reasoning were all very good, but there are also things she could have said two years ago. Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang both appeared on Democrat primary debate stages in 2019 and 2020 as they were vying for position in the Democrat Party and hopefully some nice and profitable appointments in the illegitimate Biden administration afterwards. They were increasing their public profile in the Democrat Party. And Tulsi Gabbard at least did a few good things. She went after Kamala Harris, and that was nice to see. Andrew Yang is pretty much just a typical technocratic globalist. But both of them kind of market and brand themselves as very reasonable centrists. 
as if they're the rational alternative to all the lunatics in the Democrat Party and all those very bad extreme MAGA Republicans. And of course, people on our side have gone absolutely head over heels for Tulsi Gabbard. It's like all they've ever been waiting for. They've wanted to date Tulsi Gabbard for so long. And now that she's not a Democrat anymore, it's like she's finally single and they can consummate the love that they've always felt for one another. And I personally find all of that repulsive because they're basically doing it because they think Tulsi Gabbard is pretty. What Tulsi Gabbard is saying is not actually that important. It's way too little and it's way too late. And of course, I know that Tulsi Gabbard is a former World Economic Forum young global leader, but that's not even my main focus. If Tulsi Gabbard has switched positions and woken up to a bunch of things, awesome. Good for her. Hopefully over the next few years, she will begin helping the America first movement and prove that she actually is a loyal American patriot who wants what's best for her country. But she hasn't done any of that yet. All she said is that the Democrat Party is not very good and it's not very smart. And actually, it's kind of evil. Well, great. Pretty much everyone knows that except for people who are still completely and totally asleep. And pretty much all of those people voted for Joe Biden and are still proud that they did. So who is Tulsi Gabbard speaking to and why is she on Fox News all the time? Now, call me cynical, but it seems like people like Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard are trying to find their perfect niche in the center and in that niche in the center is something that is very, very valuable to the establishments of both political parties. They're very valuable to the uniparty. And why do I say that? Well, Donald Trump has cemented himself as the Republican candidate for 2024 if he is not back in office prior to that and if he chooses to run. These are the hypotheticals you have to remember to mention. Because Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election and never conceded, and there's plenty to play out before then. But let's just take the normie scenario and say Donald Trump is going to run for president in 2024. Now, the Democrats are going to have no candidates and virtually no shot to win. If the Democrat Party continues to exist at all by then, it'll be a very, very small portion of the country that aligns with them. They can't just reform their party after doing all of this and somehow make an appeal to the middle. And people are beginning to understand that people like Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard, they're both looking for positions of political leadership. They both ran for president in 2019, 2020. And it's worth mentioning for full disclosure that I probably donated very small dollar amounts to both of them because that's how the Democrats decided to run their debates. The candidates, in order to appear on the stage, had to have received donations from a certain number of people. And so because I wanted to see more candidates that weren't obvious tools of the establishment on stage, I decided to participate in that. 
Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard were absolutely much better than people like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But both of these people have been directed toward trying to amass political power for a few years now. It is totally unsurprising to see them cut ties with the Democrat Party at this point so that it looks like what they're doing is very principled and not just a result of the Democrat Party becoming totally unviable for the foreseeable future. It's totally possible that the uniparty establishment believes that maybe 20% of the American public might be willing to side with Democrats in 2024. And I can imagine that they see some potential for appealing to maybe another 30% of the American public who knows that Democrats are nuts but that Donald Trump and those MAGA Republicans are still just too dangerous to ever have back in power. And so maybe they try to play some version of European coalition politics and then unite onto the same team in the final stages, believing that that will be enough to conquer the big bad MAGA king. We shall see. But regardless, it's pretty telling that they are cutting ties with the Democrat Party because even though all they're doing is jumping off a sinking ship, it is a pretty clear sign that that ship is in fact sinking. But who else wants nothing to do with the imminent collapse of the Democrat Party? Well, that's Barack Hussein Obama. This is from CNN yesterday. Democrats won't get as much Obama as they want in the midterms, but he has some other plans. Requests for Barack Obama are pouring in from Democrats around the country. Candidates are desperate for this help in what they feel is an existential midterm battle, one in which each race could help determine control of Congress and government in the states. To these candidates, American democracy itself is on the line. And while Obama agrees with them on the stakes, many of those invitations are about to get turned down. More than a dozen advisors and others who have spoken with Obama say the former president's approach in the fall campaign will remain limited and careful. That cautious approach comes as Obama tells people his presence fires up GOP opposition just as much as it lights up supporters, that he has more of an impact if he does less and that he can't cloud out the up-and-coming generation of Democrats. So we're being told that Barack Obama essentially views himself now as basically a 2016 Hillary Clinton. Sure, he is the absolute, undisputed, number one champion of the Democrat Communist Party, but now he's too divisive in the country. He can't pull people back toward the Democrats. In fact, he just riles up GOP opposition. That's what they want us to believe. And he doesn't want to cloud out. Maybe they mean crowd out, but hey, who knows? It's CNN. These people aren't intelligent. So he doesn't want to cloud out young up and coming Democrats. But the question has to be asked, like who? Who are the up and coming Democrats that are exciting the country right now. I don't know of any anywhere. Gretchen Whitmer was supposed to be the up and coming star of the Democrat Communist Party. 
Barack Obama's help couldn't be useful in Michigan? Is that what we're being told? Hey, don't Democrats win elections in Michigan by winning the black vote in Detroit? That's what we're always told. Why can't Barack Hussein Obama be out there winning over black Democrats for Gretchen Whitmer or for people like Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin? Josh Shapiro, the former Pennsylvania attorney general who's running for governor against Doug Mastriano. That guy had a huge role in helping to steal the 2020 election. That guy thinks he's going to be president one day. Isn't he an up and coming star? Why isn't Barack Obama campaigning next to him? Wouldn't that help? And why in the world isn't Barack Obama planning on standing on stage next to Stacey Abrams? Stacey Abrams is basically the fatter and slightly more masculine version of Barack Obama. This is like if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers decided that they would have a better chance of winning games if they just sat Tom Brady down. Like, that's your best player, isn't it? I mean, everybody agrees that Barack Obama is still their best player. He's the only Democrat in the country who could even attract a crowd. At least that's what we're told. That's what we assume. I mean, he is their number one player. Barack Obama is still the most popular politician in the entire country. We're told. But he did go campaign with Joe Biden and no one showed up to those rallies either. So what's up with that? Where is Barack Obama's popularity and why are the Democrats not putting it to use? Obama's small staff has instead been coordinating which appearances he'll make and which ads he'll record with President Joe Biden's White House political operation and the Democrat National Committee. A similar effort already happened with fundraising emails. His name has been put on political coordination between a sitting and former president, which, like so much else in current politics, is unprecedented. Yeah, that is unprecedented. Why is the very legitimate, very real president constantly coordinating everything with Barack Obama's small staff? And are they working with Michelle Obama's small staff, too? Democratic operatives say they're eager to see Obama play an active role. Even now, they say his best role is driving up crucial black voter turnout in places like Philadelphia and Detroit even as they note his appeal is shifting. Among the disinterested voter blocks are a rising generation, too young to remember his 2008 win. Those who argue that his failure to deliver on soaring promises helped set up the crisis of faith and political despair that has followed, and those who have gotten tired of seeing how little he's engaged. Man, it sounds like even Barack Hussein Obama is collapsing. He'll make a handful of appearances on the campaign trail, bundling appearances for candidates for Senate and governor and secretaries of state, arguing that Democrats winning those races is essential to, you guessed it, preserving democracy. But beyond the midterm season, Obama sees a larger purpose to this latest phase of his post-presidency life. No matter how the midterms go, the former president will host what he's calling a democracy forum two weeks after Election Day. The first event that he's hoping to turn into an annual gathering, reflecting a recalibration of the Obama Foundation to focus on democracy in America and around the world. And you can imagine that the keynote address 
will just be Barack Obama saying, even with all the money you've already given us, we failed. The solution is we need more money. And it's not for Obama. It's just for his foundation. It's a charitable organization, just like the Clinton Global Initiative. We'll explore a range of issues from strengthening institutions and fighting disinformation to promoting inclusive capitalism and expanded pluralism that will shape democracies for generations to come. Obama writes in an announcement of the event going out to donors and others involved with the foundation first obtained by CNN. We'll showcase democracy in action around the world and approaches that are working. And we'll discuss and debate ideas for how we can adapt our democracies and our institutions for a new age. Ben Rhodes, a longtime advisor who has been helping plan the Democracy Forum, said that the foundation's work is removed from politics, but will reflect Obama's priorities. Yeah, totally removed from politics. Saving the world? That's Obama. But politics? Nah, you're barking up the wrong tree. So the Democrats have basically committed to a campaign strategy that mirrors their 2020 strategy which relied on the very deadly pandemic to explain the fact that they weren't interested in campaigning at all. They weren't interested in any of their narratives being challenged in front of the American people. They would just let the media do the work for them and they would change the way elections were run, try to make it so that there could be universal mail-in balloting, that voter ID would never be checked, that ballots could be harvested, and that every single vote, quote unquote, would be counted, whether it was legal or not. There is no other strategy for them because their actual platform, their actual policies at this point are so offensive to most Americans. So traditional campaigning is out. They're going to continue to prioritize television appearances and rely on the media narrative and try to convince Americans that there is this great underswell of Democrat support if only their get-out-the-vote effort is successful. So everything for Democrats is going to be getting out the vote. Oh, we need more black voters. We need more young voters. We need more women voters. We need more Hispanic voters. And the media will tell us all that, and the child brains addicted to the central narrative will believe all that because... They've believed it so many times before. It's what the Democrats always say they're going to do in order to win. And of course, get out the vote is pretty obviously seen at this point as an effort to substantiate overwhelming election fraud as legitimate support. Democrats are used to being able to sell the country on the idea that they're the high turnout party. And so all they need to do is create one reason, one narrative that lets the country know this is going to be a high turnout election. All of a sudden, the Democrats go from having no momentum whatsoever, in fact, negative momentum, to being the party with all the momentum in order to drive that huge turnout, in quotes, that would make a fraudulent result palatable. It would make it believable. So how do they do that? Well, in order to do that, they need a big event, something that everyone understands and something that will 
cause potential swing voters to realize that the Democrats are the only reliable option. Sure, things have gone really bad and they have pushed some of the worst policies America has ever seen. But there's no way that you can turn all of this over to the Republicans. Not at a moment like this. That's what they're going to go for. So how do they get there? Well, yesterday in the Daily Mail, we have this headline. Anthony Fauci warns of a twindemic this winter. As CDC data shows, influenza cases have quadrupled in two months, but COVID continues to fizzle out. Dr. Anthony Fauci has warned of a twindemic this winter as cases of the flu surge in the U.S., quadrupling over the past two months. And we know that the flu tests are perfect. Oh, no, wait, they're not. And we know that everybody goes and gets tested for the flu, but oh, wait, they don't. There's just this wild and wacky flu out there, and we have to believe it because the science says so. Latest official data shows there were more than a thousand patients with flu in the week ending October 1st, up 303% compared to the first week in August. Oh, no, that's like 20 people per state with the flu. This is a vast underestimate because the U.S. does not routinely test for influenza in the same way as COVID. But wait, now we don't routinely test for COVID either. Test positivity, the share of swabs for the virus that are coming back positive, has risen from 0.49% to 2.5% in the same time. Dr. Fauci said on Monday that the nation should keep its guard up in the coming months as cases of both the flu and COVID are expected to rise. Cases and hospitalization for the flu and related illnesses often surge in cold weather months where people spend more time indoors, which makes it easier for viruses to spread. And the article goes on and on and on. So we have a super ultra flu COVID twindemic. And if you don't mask up and get vaccinated, you're going to kill someone's grandmother. And you don't want that on your conscience, so you'd better stay home. In fact, this is such a scary twindemic that everyone should stay home, especially around Election Day. I hope this twindemic won't get worse and worse right up until the election. I hope we don't have a moment like a week before the election where we realize that there is a twindemic national emergency. Would that get them there? Probably not, but who knows? Maybe they'll try it. They have to try something because they can't campaign. Now, the John Durham trial, the prosecution of Igor Danchenko begins today. And who knows how long that'll last, but maybe a couple of weeks. And we'll get a decision one way or another that will likely be released in the direct lead up to the midterms. Now, if Danchenko is found guilty, the media will largely ignore it and accept that one side knows that Russiagate was a hoax because it so obviously is just based on the evidence with no opinion necessary. And their viewers don't really care about this stuff anymore because they have an inkling deep down that they're wrong and that they've been lied to. And because they don't want to have that confirmed, they'll simply ignore it. So if Danchenko is found guilty, it has almost no result for them. But if Danchenko is found not guilty, well, then they get to run the media narrative 
that all of the conspiracy theories about how Trump Russia collusion was a hoax and was set up by Hillary Clinton and the DNC. Well, all the people spreading that conspiracy theory, all the no, no people, all the extreme MAGA Republicans, well, they'll be totally defeated now. Everybody knows they've been wrong the whole time. So, hey, child brains, look at that. You were actually right. All your crazy friends trying to convince you that the vaccines aren't very safe and effective. Those are the same people who are wrong again about that Russia collusion stuff. Everybody knows it happened. And maybe they think they'll make some headway with that. And then, of course, we have the potential for nuclear war that they just keep talking about all the time. You'll remember that when the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago just over two months ago, one of the things we were told would be in Donald Trump's very dangerous, very classified documents were the nuclear codes or something about selling the nuclear codes to another country or maybe nuclear material, not like uranium one, that's Hillary Clinton, but other bad stuff that Donald Trump could have definitely done because he's so, so, so bad. And so we had to be scared of nuclear war back then. And then we got the PSA from New York about what to do in the event of a nuclear catastrophe. Step one, go inside. Step two, stay inside. And step three, watch the media. And if you complete those steps, you'll be totally safe from nuclear fallout. Step four, obviously, because step two is stay inside. Step four is absolutely don't vote in person. So they get some nuke stuff going there and they got some nuke stuff with Ukraine and Russia. They're talking about how bad Vladimir Putin wants to use his nuclear weapons the comedic actor in Ukraine and these little Ukrainian diplomats are begging the United States to make their own nuclear threats that will surely back down Vladimir Putin. So there's a lot of nuclear stuff going on, and maybe they can pull out some event that shocks the American conscience into maybe considering that the Democrats might be the more responsible move. We can't trust any of those crazy extreme MAGA Republicans to handle an issue like this. But there's pretty much nothing else that they could possibly depend on. They can't campaign. Democrats campaigning at this point just keeps making things worse. Democrat Congresswoman Debbie Dingell was on this morning with Maria Bartiromo to discuss how disastrously the illegitimate presidency is going. She was talking about fentanyl and inflation and the border and a bunch of other things. Here's basically how Debbie Dingell's appearance went. This is definitely her worst moment, but the entire thing was pretty much some version of this. Get worse under Joe Biden. My statement is fentanyl is a real problem in this country, but drugs have been a problem. We've had a war on drugs since Ronald Reagan. Things have accelerated under Joe Biden because of the wide open border. Agreed? I, 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 what, we're all trying to work on the border. They can't answer questions anywhere. They can't deal with being challenged. So they absolutely cannot campaign. So what else can work? What is going to be the momentum shifting event that will finally flip the narrative 
and make it seem to a gullible and mostly disinterested public that the Democrats could still win. It seemed for a while like they thought the January 6th committee had that sort of potential, but the January 6th committee and their primetime television show have been a complete and total disaster. That's not going to work. It sounds like they're not even going to put out their very special report until after the election. But what's left? Well, they've been angling for a Donald Trump indictment for years, and then they ramp that whole thing up with the Mar-a-Lago raid. And so they're trying to increase their chances on that one, too. This is from The Washington Post on Saturday. To heal the nation, hold even the politically powerful accountable. The Mar-a-Lago document investigation, as well as the New York Attorney General's civil fraud complaint against Donald Trump and his family members alleging acts that could amount to criminal fraud, have revived a debate that has been ongoing since the 2020 election. Assuming there is the sufficient amount of evidence of criminality that ordinarily leads prosecutors to indictment, does the potential defendant status as a former president warrant special treatment, namely an exemption from prosecution not provided for in the Constitution? Ah, yes, that's the big question, and not whether or not there is a sufficient amount of evidence of criminality considering that in seven years they've been trying to prove that there is a sufficient amount of evidence to support a criminal investigation against Donald Trump, and they've gotten absolutely nowhere. But forget that. We're just assuming, you know, for the sake of argument. Those opposing prosecution say that such a meeting out of justice would backfire, galvanizing Trump's base. Some go so far as to suggest seeing the former president decked out in full orange, successfully prosecuted and dragged off to prison would be a spectacle more commonly associated with third world nations or undemocratic states. Growing up in Israel, in the shadow of the world's longest running conflict, I often considered whether it is better to forgo prosecution in favor of other forms of accountability and healing. As a young lawyer writing a doctoral thesis on international dispute resolution, I served for a time at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and later as an advisor for the emerging government of what is now the Republic of South Sudan. For several years, I've convened a course on international conflict resolution in Jerusalem, bringing together Jewish, Arab and international students, many from conflict zones, to talk about conflict and justice. That experience has convinced me, as it has others, that criminally prosecuting leaders can help heal polarized countries. Some 30 years of research in transitional justice, the multidisciplinary study of how societies can constructively emerge from conflict and assert or reassert democratic values, provide evidence that, contrary to the understandable worry that a trial would be divisive, trials can instead help heal. In fact, they are considered one of the main methods to bring about truth and reconciliation. And this framing is rather incredible. I hope that this writer will keep this position when the targets of investigation and prosecution are not Donald Trump, like they are soon to be. Examples of such transitional trials include the prosecutions of Slobodan Milosevic in the aftermath of the Balkan Wars and of Augusto Pinochet for human rights violations committed during his presidency of Chile. 
in a less dramatic example of alleged corruption rather than human rights violations and war crimes, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing criminal charges in a deeply divided Israel. In Italy, former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has been convicted of tax fraud. It's strange that she doesn't mention Lula down in Brazil, who the establishment wants to become the next president of Brazil in the runoff at the end of the month. The reasons trials help promote reconciliation are many. Trials are a performative affair. They are, among other things, a drama in which conflict is enacted and resolved. As such, they can compel attention in a way that pierces the disinformation bubble that has contributed to this era's divisiveness. And the one place you don't see disinformation is in trials and in trial coverage. Like, for instance, the January 6th committee is holding what is basically a mock trial, and there is no disinformation there whatsoever. And you know there's no disinformation because it's not the no-no people spreading it. So there can't be disinformation, even when what they're showing in the committee is disproven just hours later. A trial of a former U.S. president is certain to be covered by news outlets that lean both right and left. The same would be true of a trial of a sitting president's son. Should federal prosecutors decide to charge Hunter Biden with tax crimes or a false statement relating to a gun purchase? Now, she's picking those two out because there was an effort for a limited hangout last week. There was a story also run by The Washington Post that prosecutors may believe they might have enough to bring an indictment against Hunter Biden for failing to do his taxes properly or over the documents Hunter falsified in purchasing a gun. And don't worry, that was the only problem with Hunter's gun purchase, even though his gun did end up in a dumpster across from a school. Criminal trials are also easily understood by most, if not all of the population. And you got to understand that is so very important. Because the Washington Post, they have the most sophisticated audience in the world. And that's how all of them know that Russian collusion is real and that the FBI seized very important documents at Mar-a-Lago. But everyone else, all those unsophisticated people, they don't really get it too easily. So they need to see the trial. Consider how memorable and enduring was the trial of O.J. Simpson. Or recall President Bill Clinton's infamous testimony about the nature of his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Now compare that with how impenetrable the Mueller report was and how little traction its findings have found in the general discourse, let alone the popular imagination. And oh, they tried. They tried to stoke the popular imagination into believing that there really was something damning for Trump in the Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation found that there was no collusion and the Mueller investigation was a failure on multiple levels, as proven by the I.G. Horowitz report. Trials are about the establishment of truth through evidence beyond reasonable doubt. The truth gathered and amplified through the drama of a trial creates a historical record and shapes the collective memory. Trials are a stage upon which individuals with firsthand knowledge can be compelled to testify about what they know and must do so truthfully under penalty of perjury. Trials are as much about educating the public about the wrongs that have been done as they are about seeking retribution for harms done, though they are about that as well. So this writer is effectively arguing the good of show trials. 
The trials are not about a fair proceeding under the law. The trials are about creating a perception in the public. And this is a good thing. This is so Orwellian, but even calling it Orwellian doesn't do justice to what this actually is. This is a complete inversion of morality within the false reality, and it should be recognized as such. This is absurd. At the trial, the defendant gets to testify and be heard and has the opportunity to compel the testimony of others. Milosevic, for instance, used his stage at The Hague to great effect. Any defense to alleged crimes that Trump or again Hunter Biden might testify to without committing perjury would be similarly amplified through the trial. High profile criminal trials should not be the only or the primary tool of reconciliation on our path to national healing. Bipartisan dialogue and resurrecting the tradition of appointing members of the opposing party to the cabinet are examples of important measures that should be put into practice, no matter who holds office. But the bar to clear for any decision to prosecute should not be any lower when it comes to former President Trump or any other politician or politician's family member than the one for everyday Americans. Nor should the bar be any higher in a rule of law society, especially not in a divided country in need of truth and reconciliation. Assuming sufficient evidence of criminality, Trump should face prosecution. The same is true for Hunter Biden. To borrow from a favorite courtroom drama, we can handle the truth. We need to even so we can start to heal. And so right there, you have the false equivalence between Donald Trump and Hunter Biden. They both need to be prosecuted for everything they've done. And we know that all Hunter Biden ever did was maybe fudge his taxes a little bit and falsify his documents in a gun purchase. And that's it. That is absolutely it. And that, my friends, is why we got the limited hangout last week. So that this exact narrative could be spun that, yeah, sure, everybody's been talking about all these Hunter Biden problems. There's a lot of smoke. And here's the thing. There's a little tiny bit of fire. We're not going to lie to you. We're going to tell you the truth. That's what we do as the arbiters of truth in the mainstream media. We don't want to lie to you. So we're going to tell you there are some minor, very minor problems on Hunter Biden's laptop. But none of them reached Joe Biden, none of them at all. You see, Joe Biden did not know about Hunter's business dealings, despite the fact that there is overwhelming and irrefutable evidence on the laptop that Joe knew about them the whole time. Don't worry about any of that, though. None of that exists now. Now we've told you that the problems are little tax crime, little gun crime. That's it. Meanwhile, on the other hand, Everybody knows that Donald Trump has committed so many crimes. There's no information that he actually has committed crimes, just to be clear, because we are a very objective news source. We are professionals here. But assuming that there is overwhelming evidence that Donald Trump committed crimes, we're not sure which ones, but there have to be crimes somewhere. Assuming that evidence exists, well, then Donald Trump should be prosecuted every bit as much as Hunter Biden. Donald Trump has, in fact, committed the worst crimes anywhere ever. We should assume in our collective imagination and Hunter Biden has done almost nothing. But the way to move forward, the way to unify and heal is to put them both on trial. And those trials will create a collective understanding of all the crimes that both men have done. And again, hunters are almost non-existent and Trump's are 
overwhelming in their existence, but just, you know, don't have the supportive evidence. We're going to assume that they do. We're going to assume that they do. That's what we need to do. And in the meantime, we're going to promote a Donald Trump indictment absolutely as hard as we can because we need something. We need a momentum changing event because we can't campaign. And let's be clear. This strategy is basically an admission that they steal elections because in free and fair elections, no one anywhere would ever believe that a party who refused to campaign and refused to defend their positions on the issues in front of voters could actually win elections and not just win that that's their best strategy to win. That just isn't possible with free and fair elections. But it actually gets worse for Democrats because the election fraud of 2020 that they've tried to cover up, that they've tried to censor and make dangerous, that they've called the big lie. Well, all of that is falling apart, too. On Friday, Mike Lindell received word from the DOJ of all places that the government was lifting its gag order that they had maintained on all of the Dennis Montgomery information, the tracking of the election in 2020 and probably other elections, the PCAPs, all of that's real. And now all of it can be used. And that's not the only place that the election fraud narrative is absolutely collapsing. This is a thread posted on Friday by Rasmussen reports And Rasmussen is a major polling company. And yes, Rasmussen has a reputation of being right of center, but that's meaningless in a world where the other polling companies are running polls specifically to support Democrat narratives. And regardless of any potential biases that someone might bring up, the point is that Rasmussen by and large is mainstream. Mainstream journalists, mainstream politicians look at Rasmussen. They have a reputation. They're in the game and their work is seen as important. This is the thread that they published on Friday. The Connick election systems bombshell, a thread. Election poll forecasting is rendered useless by election fraud. That's why we will continue to follow and report on documented threats to fair and honest elections. Let's get started. Now, it's worth noting that Rasmussen hasn't really spent any time on this in the last couple of years. So I don't look at this and think, oh, thank goodness for Rasmussen, the only principled people brave enough to look at election fraud. But their admission there is key. It's extremely important. And it's something that I've been talking about consistently for the last couple of years. Election poll forecasting is rendered useless by election fraud. And that is by and large correct. In fact, election fraud being present in the system distorts the polls the same way that polls distort the image of the public about how elections might go. When fraudulent election results are reported, it distorts the public view of what the public actually thinks. And because the polling companies want to correspond in some way with what they believe the public really thinks. The fraudulently derived election results actually do influence the polling results and the weight they give 
to certain responses. It's a completely messed up system that at best just kind of borders on empirical reality. But let's get back to the thread. Monday, October 3rd, 2022. This is last Monday. The New York Times decides to launch a hit piece on True the Vote, who they say falsely accused an American company of hosting the data of 2 million U.S. election workers on a secret computer server in communist China. And we discussed that last week. Less than 24 hours later, the Los Angeles County District Attorney announces the Michigan arrest of the CEO of that very same company after an investigation for storing Los Angeles County election worker data on servers in the People's Republic of China. Coincidentally, we also publish our latest U.S. election integrity poll showing the issue again ranking at number five among all likely voters for the upcoming midterm elections with 84 percent concerned, 61 percent very concerned. We also rerun our 2020 election cheating survey and the survey as they post it. How likely is it that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 presidential election? And they show likely versus not likely all 55% to 40% Republican 75, 20 Democrat, 35% likely 61% not likely independent 53, 40 white 52, 42 black 55, 40 Hispanic 62, 35, 18 to 39, 55 to 30, 65 plus 49% to 45% likely, not likely. So what does that mean? Self-identifying Democrats are the only group of people in the country who thinks that it was unlikely that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Republicans are nearly certain that it did. Independents lean strongly toward cheating having affected the 2020 outcome. White voters are strongly supporting it. Black voters are strongly supporting it. Hispanics are overwhelmingly supporting it, almost two to one. Young voters, 18 to 39, there's a 25% gap saying it's likely that cheating affected the outcome. The only people who disagree are people who still self-identify as Democrats and even 35% of them think that cheating affected the outcome. The arrest of CEO Eugene Yu by the Los Angeles District Attorney triggers October 4th reminders of prior month reporting by Kanakoa the Great. FBI conceals Chinese infiltration of U.S. election software and Kanakoa's piece is linked there. Kanakoa.substack.com if you want to learn more. Kanakoa the Great is absolutely awesome. It's K-A-N-E-K-O-A.substack.com. And new reporting by the right scoop arrives on how true the vote previously reported their discovery of this connect Chinese server connection to the FBI way back in January 2021. Kanakoa describes what happened this April when the FBI DC office finally gets the connect file from their field office. The DC office doesn't target connect. It targets true the vote. Why they would ever do that remains a mystery. Meanwhile, a humiliated New York Times reporter files his follow on article, no doubt after screaming all day at the intelligence community sources who set him in the paper up for such a swift propaganda catastrophe. Yesterday, 
Canicoa files a follow-on article. Connect CEO Eugene Yu's connection to China's National People's Congress and Chinese telecom giants. And you can find that on his Substack as well. And thus, Connex CEO Eugene Yu is caught lying about storing the personal data of 2 million U.S. election workers in China. Legacy media goes totally silent. The CCP likely has had the access passwords to multiple U.S. election systems and devices for years. What to do now? Was the 2020 presidential election the most secure in American history? Arguably, it certainly was not, and vote counts could have been manipulated by our economic enemy, the CCP. Why? Proof? The Wisconsin legislature, for one, officially found voting systems online, and this is from a filing in Wisconsin. The OSC learned that all machines in Green Bay were ESS machines and were connected to a secret hidden Wi-Fi access point at the Grand Hyatt Hotel, which was the location used by the city of Green Bay on the day of the 2020 presidential election. The OSC discovered the Wi-Fi machines and ballots were controlled by a single individual who was not a government employee, but an agent of a special interest group operating in Wisconsin. And they're talking about Michael Spitzer Rubenstein. But let's continue with the thread. The conic Chinese data hosting security issue was reported to the FBI by True the Vote in January 2021. The FBI ended up attacking True the Vote for identifying the issue, which here one month from midterms, is entirely unresolved and subject embargoed by legacy media. Cornered by the Connick arrest, legacy media amps up their lie that the 2020 elections were the most secure in history. They have no proof now that the CCP had no access to our 2020 election systems, quite the opposite. So they're spraying their same old propaganda, and they include a screenshot of the Washington Post with a headline, where Republican election deniers are on the ballot near you. And they show 300 people that they have classified as election deniers so that all the child brains reading the Washington Post know exactly who to avoid in the upcoming elections. Don't ever vote for these election deniers. And that's kind of funny that the Washington Post is advertising all of these people as election deniers, because with four weeks remaining till the midterms, it is entirely possible, and I believe probable, but that's just my personal speculation, that the election fraud narrative from 2020 is going to become a massive narrative prior to this election. And if that happens, won't people gravitate toward the people who have been talking about election fraud since 2020? You know, election deniers returning to the thread. Thus, some company screenshots are in order. All of this data about U.S. election operations during and after the 2020 elections was and still is hosted in communist China under the benevolent and ever watchful eyes of the CCP, who naturally only want the best for America. And they have Connex Security embedded design. They have another with the same caption for Connex Security in development and another with the same caption for Connex Infrastructure and Hosting Security. That brings you up to date. We'll add more developments as they develop. In the meantime, we'll leave you with this ancient 2021 exhibit, a completely bonkers conspiracy theory, perhaps. But so was any evidence that China held the records of 2 million U.S. election workers.
And the screenshot points to a list of attempted and successful intrusions. New development. Mr. The most secure in American history himself has been tasked with spraying air freshener across this conic access mess, just like he tried in November 2020. He will not even mention the company name. His thread is here, and they attach a thread from former CISA director Chris Krebs as he tries to resubstantiate his claim that the 2020 election was the safest and most secure election in American history. His no evidence deflection dance is silent about the official investigation that determined the server is in communist China, thus undercutting all of the assurances about voter security that follow. He references an FBI announcement that is utterly silent about their own involvement in this matter since at least January 2021. Here, the whitewash runs thin. Connick is a communications and security hub for 2 million American election workers secretly hosted in China. U.S. voters were lied to about this for years. And a new development. Just spotted this if the author hadn't, one, discovered the Connick server in China, two, reported that to the FBI in January 2021, three, been dragged into court by Connick, and four, saw the Los Angeles district attorney confirm the China server, we might have termed this meritless, not now. And they attach a truth social post from Greg Phillips that says, we have reason to believe that each state and indeed each county has built their own little election stealing cells funded and equipped by the same crowd, but all slightly different in their approach insurgencies. Our job is to create counterinsurgencies. And so how should we view the results that we might see in 28 days? Well, it's clear on a number of levels that we should expect massive Republican wins unless the communists are successful in generating a narrative that supports a successful election fraud effort. And there is still an outside possibility of that working. I think that this is a pretty good set of potential momentum shifting events that they might be able to concoct from nothing if the media actually has the power to do it for them. But the media doesn't have that power to do it for them. And even the election fraud narrative is falling apart. That is the most important thing and the most existential threat to the Democrat Communist Party and to uniparty Republicans who are supporting the global communist agenda and the election fraud apparatus. If they lose the ability to commit election fraud, the game is over. They can't win on the issues and they know it. They have no stars. They have no young up and coming candidates. And members of the Democrat Party who were ever seen that way are now leaving the party for what they hope are greener pastures. So how are they supposed to win? Well, the truth is they can't win without election fraud. And if that happens, we need to be ready to go after it. If this ends up taking another two years, then that's just how it goes. And we got to be on board for it. But I don't think it's going to happen. And I don't think they actually have the ability to pull off any of these momentum shifting narratives. People just don't buy what the media is selling anymore. So we should be extremely confident about the position we're in relative to these elections. That doesn't mean 
that we can just sit back, though. We need to get out and vote in person on Election Day and convince other people to do so. And we need to watch the elections. We need to watch the election process. And we need to watch the media and how they discuss these elections. Because if election fraud is carried out, and it will be on some level, the way we get the entire country to understand is to prepare them to understand, to let them know how this process works so that they can see it for themselves in real time the way we all do. And if that happens, we're going to bring this thing home. All we need to do is execute. All we need to do is pay attention and make sure the people around us are paying attention and we can go save this country. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree linktree.com slash I'm your moderator and I'll see you soon out on the range Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!